Welcome to Manage This, the podcast by project managers for project managers. Every other week, we carve out some time to meet and talk about what matters to you in the field of project management. We pick the brains of some of the top performers in the profession, hear their stories, explore their methods, and celebrate their successes. I'm your host, Nick Walker, and with me are a couple of guys who are the top of the tops, Andy Crow and Bill Yates. And Andy, last time we had a thought-provoking discussion with someone who has been right in the middle of managing crisis situations, and we get to hear more from him today. I would say he's been more in the middle of it than anybody I know personally. And so it was a wonderful discussion uh, about uh, the Fukushima disaster. Chuck Casto, president of the Casto Group, brings with him a long and prestigious career in nuclear safety and regulatory issues. He was a member of the Senior Executive Service at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, holding the position of regional administrator. He has been asked on numerous occasions to resolve complex policy issues for clients and for Congress, and was the recipient of the Distinguished Executive Award from President Obama in 2012. Chuck was the director of site operations in Japan during the Fukushima nuclear plant accident. He helped reestablish that country's regulatory body after the accident and also established criteria to restart nuclear plants that had been shut down in Japan. Dr. Casto, once again, may I say what a privilege it is to have you here on Manage This. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Nick. Well, last time we met, we talked about responding to this international crisis and what it took to lead people through it. So let's recap just a little bit. Can you just briefly describe where were you when you first heard about this accident? Well, Friday, March 11th, I, as like many of us, I saw on television that the nuclear plant and well, the earthquake had happened and the tsunami had happened. And then um, we had learned somewhere late that afternoon that the nuclear plant had experienced a devastating tsunami attack, 45 feet high at least, and had wiped out their cooling systems. For me, I was working construction projects for several reactors under construction here in Georgia and South Carolina, not really connected to the operational part of the house any longer, had been with the operational part for decades. So Washington was handling the crisis. I was here remote. Atlanta working on a construction project in obscurity hmm. when Prime Minister Khan called President Obama and asked for help. And uh, as they looked for people to lead the team in Japan, then uh, my name popped up and I was chosen. I, I guess the first real interaction, I was actually nearby here uh, getting uh, gas, fueling my pickup truck, and my neighbor called me and said, Chuck, what's up with this nuclear plant in Japan? And I said, well, John, they'll They'll get power and water back to it, and everything will be just fine. (laughs) Well, I was quite wrong. And uh, later on when he found that I was leading the effort, he said, you, Mr. Uh, Everything's going to be okay. You're leading the effort. So it was – it was mu- it, the outcome was much different than we had expected, mm-hmm. and I, when I finally uh, got the call, I had a three hours' notice to grab my passport. I was in downtown Atlanta. I had to have my wife get my some a few clothes together and a um, passport and drive back north and then back down to the airport. And meanwhile, on cell phone, getting charters and getting calls from the chairman and other people about mm-hmm. the role. Um, I think. I, I, as a good crisis leader, I put on a shirt that had a had a logo, had a <laughs> nuclear logo on it. Yeah, and I I jumped on an American flight, and as I as I got on the flight, 
uh, the flight attendant. Of course, everything's going on, right? The, the, everyone's talking about this nuclear plant disaster, and here we are getting on a flight to go to Narita mm. with the crew. And I didn't, I didn't really appreciate the fear that was happening with the people on the flight and the flight attendants mm. and the crew about flying to Japan during the midst of this disaster. And then I walk on the flight with a logo shirt on that says, you know, <laughs> nuclear guy. And Target, so, that's your so first mistake. I sat down in the back of the aircraft with, you know, back as a government worker, you sit back there with the cows, the chickens, and the pigs <laughs> back in the back, right? And and we get up to cruising altitude, and the steward, head steward came, and she says, uh, Mr. Casto. And I said, yes. She said, would you get your stuff and come with me? Well, I thought they were going to throw me off the airplane, <laughs> right? At cruising altitude. I'll and, take the uh, shirt off. I'll yeah, take the I, shirt right, off. Really, seriously, I'll cover it up or something. Cause, and, and she took me up to, business, up to first class huh. and put me in an empty seat in first class. Well, mm. I thought that was great. I'll be able to get some sleep and get some rest. And I had some manuals I'd brought with me, and I'll think and I'll study. Well, what it, re- what it really turned out was they wanted to talk with me. Mm. And literally, no exaggeration, for the next eight hours, the crew would come up individually mm. and in pairs. They would think – they'd ask questions. And then they'd come back and they'd say, oh, wait a minute, we, did, we forgot to ask him about this, right? Mm. Let's go ask him about this. And basically what they were interested in, are we safe? Right. Are we safe flying into Japan? during this radioactive release mm. so it was that, that's when it really struck me i mean you know kind of organically mm. that people are worried but this is there's real concern when people are um, you know sitting with you and they're afraid for their mm. health they're afraid for their life oh yeah chuck you mentioned the the 50 who were on oh, the Fukushima 50 yes. yeah. yeah and obviously they made a great sacrifice uh, there was loss of life even on, at the facility. There were two operators who drowned in the in the plant. Mm. Yes. Yeah. As you're stepping into this situation, there's fear, there's un- uncertainty, there's doubt. The, those are ingredients that no project manager wants to face. That's right. And uh, and we we hit on this theme before of all these data points that are coming in that you're having to you're having to control that fear, that uncertainty, that doubt look at these data points, and as you said before, see where they fit in your goalposts of those extremes, and, and are they within that range, that bell curve that you're trying to define, and resist the temptation if it's outside one way or the other to, to jump on, you know, the sky is falling uh, until you have, as you mentioned, more friends, right, more right. data points. More data points. Um, just talk us through more. How do you how how do you control when you have passionate engineers who are in a once in a life situation with this much crisis and chaos? How do you control those people and and stick to your to your model, which you know is appropriate for this situation? Uh, well, thanks for that, Bill. And the difference in this in leadership in this event than most crisis events is that many of the leaders involved not necessarily me, but many of the leaders involved, the Fukushima 50, were facing their own mortality. Right. So this is a situation when you're a leader, you come to work and you don't expect to face life and death situation. You, it, we have organizations, first responders, we have the military, who in those domains, they train and they expect death. This is a commercial application where you don't expect to be faced with a situation of your own death or the death of your your employees, right. um, so that that completely turns the uh, leadership story around. 
and, and the importance of remaining calm and organized. I, I'll tell one story about uh, Izawa. He was the control room operator. When the earthquake hit, they lost power in the plant. Things, but they were they're used to a power loss, and they have trained for that. That that was normal. There were a lot of alarms, a lot of noise in control room, a lot of chaos going on. But they were controlling it. Then all of a sudden, the chaos started to stop. Hmm. There no more alarms, no more, and they didn't realize because they're inside this big protected building that the tsunami had hit. But suddenly, the alarms start going quiet. The controls start going dark. You no longer have control of the plant. You can't see control of the plant. Uh, and uh, the operators in the control room, this is an unusual. We, we train for some of this to some extent, but this was well beyond what um, is normal training, what you would consider mm. normal training. People were panicked. People were screaming at each other in the control room about where are the control rods, where what where's cooling at, cooling flow. So Ozawa, he, I thought he did an interesting thing. The first thing he did when, when he realized that they had lost control of the plant was he actually stepped behind a, a, a beam and he self-reflected. Hmm. He, he took a second and he stood there where no one could see him and he stood there and he said, okay, what's my heart rate doing? What, am I, are my palms wet? Am I under control? Do I have control of myself? Oh. Because if I don't have control of myself, Right, we know from Covey who's the hardest person to manage, mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. so he took a he took a few seconds in the middle mm-hmm. midst of chaos, just to make sure he was calm. What an and excellent he, point! Yeah, and then he could go to his operators and say, "Now let's settle down." Ultimately, when you think about it, the the control room was dark. They'd lost the lighting. You don't know what the radiation level is. You've right. lost your radiation reading. You don't know if it's these are lethal doses that you're being exposed to. Mm-hmm. You have no controls. There is no reason to stay in that control room. No reason. And the operators, young operators, went to Izawa and said, boss, there is no reason to be here. The only thing that could happen here is we die from overexposure of radiation. We're ready to get out of here. But he had to keep them there. So here is this young leader, Izawa, who has his staff, his his team, uh, wishing to evacuate, to leave. And he had to keep them there even when there was no reason to stay. And he did a great job of it. He did a fantastic job of keeping them in the control room and, and basically telling them, you know, this is, this is, our, this is our job, uh, and the people outside that are being evacuated would expect us to do everything even when there's nothing we can wow. do, mm-hmm. and we should stay. They all had tears in their eyes. Mm-hmm. He bowed to them and said, I, I, I need you to stay with me, mm-hmm. and they stayed. Mm. So that mortality, it's, it's called mortality salience in the literature is, is, or death anxiety, is how your decision-making changes. And when, when you're faced with your own death, mm. it doesn't matter what your supervisor says. Right. You're gonna, you're gonna, your natural instincts are going to take over, mm. right? And so for a leader to be able to overcome those natural instincts mm-hmm. and manage that person and lead that person, that's that's. I mean, incredible. that is that is leadership. Though. Absolutely. And uh, you know, panic is contagious. There is no question. But calm is contagious too. That's right. Right. Oh, that's a very good point. And and he knew that. He knew if if one of those operators panicked, they would probably all panic, and he would lose them. Mm-hmm. So trying to keep any one of them from panicking was was important. 
There's a, a quote that comes to mind there, uh, Admiral William McRaven. He served in the U.S. Navy for 37 years. I just recently saw a, uh, a speech that he gave in uh, 2014. He was a, a SEAL for, a Navy SEAL for 36 years. And one of his quotes was, if you want to change the world, you must be your very best in the darkest moment. And that resonated with me. You know, as a project manager, I don't, I don't think of my darkest moment as being a life or death situation. Right. Uh, but for the leadership that they lived out, that's commendable. And, and it, of course, that's a military application, and, uh, mm-hmm. and I know Cra- Craven, and uh, he does a great job, and I've listened to his speeches, mm-hmm. and they're incredible. We're, ne- we're never going to make people in, in a movie theater, leaders in a movie theater, an extreme crisis right. leader. But what can we learn? What can we learn from this to apply to our own workplace? You're not going to be a Zawa. That's not going to right. happen to you. Right? Let's hope that never God, happens to God you. God hope. But, but, but what can we learn from it? And, and I think the, the biggest, one of the biggest learnings is there's a threshold of trust. We, we in our workplace, we trust each other. I trust you sitting here, Bill, Andy, and Nick. I trust you as we sit here that you have my best interest in mind. An active shooter walks in the door. The threshold of trust changes. Hmm. Right, and what you see in these crises like this, an extreme crisis, is that threshold changes, but also there's a constant reexamination of the leader during the crisis. So I think that's what one of the things we can learn is that if if we if we have a remote location or something that's undergoing some kind of chaos like that, you understand that those leaders are having a huge difficulty in leading right now, and they're probably not prepared for what they're about to face. So you're your, your leadership in that organization is probably going to be heavily challenged, and you have to know that as a CEO. Chuck, I want to return to something you brought up last time. Um, <clears throat> we talked about what success looked like, and you, you used a great word picture of goalposts and said, um, you know, ideally the best, the best worst case, uh, if I'm getting that right, was that things don't get any worse, and the worst worst case is they get a lot worse. And um, but I asked you what success looked like. You said that no more radioactivity escaped. Um, so let me ask you this. You've got this mission, and it's got a lot of visibility, and there, is, uh, there, there are life-or-death consequences uh, in play here. How much influence did you have toward creating that outcome or steering toward that outcome? Great, great question, because this is one of the most important lessons, I think, in leadership that I learned. Remember... And for all of your project managers who work in an international atmosphere, you, this is a whole different culture. Right. You, you are being plucked from the American culture. Now you're in a, the Japanese culture. Completely different. Right. So our leadership style as Americans, here's, here's our leadership style as Americans is when we go international. We listen, we analyze, and then we boss. That's what Americans do when they go international, right? They just, I know what your answer is, and I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to save you all the effort because I know what your answer is. And you know what? You know what we did when we got over there? The same thing. The first few days, we got into this. Well, these are American reactors. They were built by General Electric, an American company. We, we've operated them for decades. We'll tell you exactly what you need to do. And that didn't work. We had very a lot of difficulty with that. We tried to impose some solutions on them that were not workable. And I actually went into a meeting and I just listened. I listened to them explain 
why it wasn't workable. I didn't. I tried not to bias myself. I'm just. I'm just going to listen to what they have to say, and I'm going to learn, and I'm going to learn it from their perspective. Mm. I'm going to understand it in their mind, not in my mind, but understand their mind, right? And then I'm going to look for ways to help them through that, not boss, but help them through that, and then perhaps I can lead from that. So I call it listen, learn, help, and lead through a, a solution. I think that's the most important thing that I learned um, in working with a, another culture. Uh, you can't – and in learning the cultural ways, it's important to learn their culture and as quickly as you can and to, to work with that culture. I have a funny story. As, as we would meet, the, the Japanese have a tendency to organize the room. The, or, the room, the meeting room has to be perfectly organized. There's a certain structure that has to be done. The, the, the sort of the, the lowest ranking person has to sit closest to the door in case somebody needs to go get something. And there, there's all kinds of strategies for how the room is set up. When I learned that, and it was taking us a long time to get to the meat of the meeting by setting up the room. So I would tell my people, okay, let's get there 10 minutes earlier. We know the way this room has to be set up. Let's set up the room, hmm. get it all set up, and then we can just, they can just walk in and we can start the meeting. We don't have to hesitate with this room. So use it as a strategic advantage to you and learn their culture and, and work within their culture. Yeah. You right. adapted. You adapt, right. I managed a project uh, back uh, right before Y2K, uh, and it involved France, the U.K., the U.S., Spain, Germany, and the Netherlands. So six countries together, and I was the PM over those six countries. And just within the, the five European countries uh, that I was working with, the cultural differences were astonishing just between uh, even between uh, Germany and Italy and France, the cultural differences were stunning. Right. And so, uh, you know, and yet those were ones I could at least somewhat relate to. And you get into this situation and you find that, hey, there's a different culture. There's a different approach to how you lead and how you have to listen and how you have to influence. So this is this is good stuff, Chuck. And we're not in charge, right? These are this is not our not our country, not right. our reactors. So it is about influencing. Right. That's what it's about is how do I influence? One of the things that you mentioned in our first conversation were there were there were two – your charter really had two pieces to it. And one of those goals was to protect the 200,000 U.S. citizens that were in Japan. When we look at it, was that the easier thing to do? How, what did that look like? Did it really come back to that key success factor of we need to limit – uh, the radiation release as much as possible? Were there any other factors you had to think about related the, to those U.S. citizens? Tr trying to um, – many of the embassies in Japan uh, evacuated, and many of the dependents evacuated. Mm -hmm. Now, we're talking about an alliance with the Americans and the Japanese, a strategic alliance that goes way back, and that we are linked in protecting their nation. Mm -hmm. So if the Americans run – the Americans leave, mm. what message does that send to the Japanese? Right. right. We have the strategic alliance on the northern coastline. There's obviously they have some neighbors up there that cause some problems. So you've got the Reagan out there doing her, her mission, not only to uh, recover and rescue the lost, right. but to protect the northern, northern alliance. That's the aircraft carrier. The aircraft carrier, mm -hmm. the Reagan. And, uh, and then us trying to keep – 
Um, we did do a, a dependent evacuation. Mm-hmm. 7,000 dependents did leave. Um, we were authorized early departure. It's called voluntary early departure. Mm-hmm. And they were, were allowed to go back to the States. There were YouTube videos being published by Americans that were very, very unhelpful. Mm-hmm. They were speculation about what was going on. Right. They were, there were a lot of anti-nuclear, to be honest with you, a lot of anti-nuclear people were publishing very bad, very poor, very inaccurate YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the dependents and the, and the workers, the Americans in Japan, see these. And they think that the American government is not telling the truth or the Japanese government's not telling the truth. And they believe this stuff on the Internet. It was very harmful mm-hmm. um, to our mission. And in great contrast to the way you're carefully challenging each fact and each <laughs> fact right. bringer That's right. that somebody mm-hmm. speculates, but they probably put it out as if it's absolute, absolute. truth. And, mm-hmm. and the, some of these people were nuclear engineers. They're, uh, they're, you right. know, they're anti-nuclear people who have turned and they're, and they're publishing. So they, they, and they take about 1% of the facts mm-hmm. and weave a 100% story out of it. Mm false story so that was very that was very trying to keep people calm the dependents the american citizens and then we had them the military u.s military doing their mission there mm-hmm. as well Fifty thousand yeah. military service people and then on the reagan on the uss reagan things things came to me that i had no idea um you know you just don't have a perspective on i remember the military was very concerned about where the reagan should be positioned and about uh, future plumes of radioactivity coming from the right. site because you have 15,000 sailors and troops out there with the aircraft, with the carrier group. And they were very worried about that, obviously. The Reagan had already sailed through a plume of radioactivity and uh, was contaminated. The equipment, the people, all that. And by the way, she kept doing her mission hmm. despite that, right? U.S. military. And... Uh, Things that I hadn't considered, even as a nuclear person, you know, the, the admirals were saying, "Look, we, we have, we have uh, women of childbearing age on the aircraft carrier. Be, you know, can be exposed. We have pregnant women on. They were um, lactating and and shipping milk back to the mm. mainland from people on. So when you when you get into a crisis like this, these other aspects come in that you really mm-hmm. had no visibility on. Mm-hmm. Right? You have no no visibility. You had mm-hmm. uh, knockoff radiation detectors." were pouring into the country from China and other places. So people were measuring radiation everywhere. So, Chuck, um, you've got this situation that is a crisis like like nothing we had seen, really. I mean, it, it uh, dwarfs what happened at Three Mile Island in many ways. Absolutely. And uh, the evacuation aspect and all of these other components to it. So as project managers, we always ask a really important question at the end of a project, and that is – uh, it, it ties back to lessons learned, uh, which is uh, ask the question, if you had this to do over again, what would you do differently? Hmm. So I want to ask you that because you lived through this. You were there. Um, I've seen many photos of you in a hazmat suit, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, a radiation suit. Um, <clears throat> that would be an interesting way to try to get bumped up to first class. <laughs> maybe right. I'll, maybe I'll right. put one of those on next time. I shouldn't make light of that. But uh, the idea now that you can look back at this, what would you do differently? What are your lessons learned? Well, the biggest one, as I have spoke earlier, I would have connected at the senior management levels sooner um, with, the, with, the, with the utility and with the government. We tried, what we all try is let's get the engineers tied together and get them talking to each right. other. 
You have to do that, but that doesn't help you with what we call sense-making, making sense of the situation, <laughs> right? It doesn't – Carl Weick's sense-making, enacted sense-making, and working your way through a problem, not over-committing, not over-committing to a, a direction where you think that, well, I've got these data points, so that's the direction, that's where I'm driving. And a crisis like this, one of the biggest things I think you have to do is to not overcommit and think you know what the situation is when you don't. Right. right? So I would go in much more eyes wide open and not try to solve the immediate technical problem, but try to protect people on the outside and work my way in rather than we tried, if this makes any sense, we tried to local solutions inside the reactors to mm-hmm. fix it. But we, as you said, Bill, we didn't have infrastructure to do it, didn't have, so we were, we were trying to work from the inside, deep inside the reactor, out to the people and protect them. I probably would focus more on going the other way, mm-hmm. right, is to protect the people, you know, get the evacuation, make sure the evacuation is clean. And People, were, people died during the evacuation. Right. And uh, so that's, that's something you have to work on. Uh, they chose to move critical care patients, and that caused, that caused death. Um, the, you know, the, the law is you can't use an elevator after an earthquake, and they tried to move critical care patients down staircases, mm-hmm. and that, that didn't work in a mm-hmm. lot of cases. So uh, focusing on outside in, more mm-hmm. outside in, I think, Andy, would be – I don't know if that's a clear yeah, I answer. Yeah, I think it, it's fascinating to me because I'm one of those who would be trying tactical solutions inside the reactor as well. Just that's right. my nature right. is I would be trying to solve it from an engineering perspective and, you know, miracle occurs here and, and try and implement right. some great solution. But it was bigger than that. And mm. it's easy to look at it and say, well, our immediate problem is, is radioactive material escaping. Yes. But you know what? There's, there is a tremendous problem that radiates out all, uh, all the way from this, literally. And we've got to look at it holistically. And when you look at uh, many kilometers of, of, of abandoned cities and towns and people left immediately, uh, you know, I, as I drove through that area, you know, I told you some of the infrastructure things, but you'd also see the, the front door of the house open where people just left and didn't even shut the door. Right? Mm-hmm. Or go buy a coffee shop and see coffee cups still sitting on the counter. Yeah. You know, so all those things are the people part of it is is essential to get that. It's like Chernobyl oh, in yes. that regard. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the levels were low enough. The radi- radiation levels were low enough. They represented an increase in potential for cancers, but not death. Mm-hmm. The levels outside the plant were not at a level that would be uh, fatal, mm-hmm. right? Far from it. So that's a big difference than Chernobyl. Chernobyl, since the fuel actually left the plant, mm-hmm. right, there were people being exposed to lethal doses, citizens being exposed to lethal doses outside the plant. In this case, it was a plume of radioactivity with lower level would be an increase in risk of cancer. One of the lessons learned that you brought out was a it was a straight up engineering construction type thing related to the backup generators right that just you know it was like ah my right. jaw dropped when you mentioned they okay, were in the, the generators were yeah. in the basement right tsunami water basement flood no power were there other takeaways like that that from a, a perspective that we can relate to as pms 
that you look at and go, okay, this was a this was some this was a nugget that we pulled out of these um, retrospective that we did. There were many uh, technical issues inside the plant that had to be yeah. redesigned after the accident. I would say, just to put it simply, after every event like 9/11, we learned in the nuclear industry, what do we need to do differently? After 9-11 attacks on a nuclear plant, we decided to have temporary equipment at the site that could be brought in if an aircraft attacked the plant hmm. and ruined the systems. We'd have a temporary equipment there that could be brought in. What we learned from 3-11 was that you could lose the entire site and all the backup, even if you stored backup equipment on site, you could lose that. Hmm. So what we've done in the U.S. and in many countries now is We've staged equipment. Uh, there's, there are two locations in the United States, two regional locations in the United States, where all the plants have coordinated the logistics of, I need this pipe size flanged here. I need this. What, what might I need if there's a, if a major accident? So we store those um, in two regional centers and make sure they have airlift capability mm. so that if a reactor does experience a devastating attack of some kind, uh, or accident of some kind, then that could be brought in from the regional centers. Um, we, we, we try to make them self-sufficient for the first 72 hours, but then the regional help comes in. Mm -hmm. So that's the big change mm -hmm. that we have. Dr. Casto, thanks so much been a pleasure. for sharing your experience Absolute with pleasure. us. Just a fascinating conversation. Thank you, gentlemen. We have a special gift for you. Oh, wow, before, gift before for you. Go. Yeah, wow. yeah, it's it's this Manage This coffee mug. <laughs> okay, great. This is our version of the logo shirt. Okay. <laughs> That's right. yeah. And it well, will get you bumped up uh, easily. It will definitely give you the business class. And I, uh, <laughs> or at oh, least comfort. comfort yeah, yeah, discomfort class. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Well, thanks again, Chuck. Andy and Bill, thanks for your insight as well. We want to remind our listeners that free PDUs, professional development units, are almost in your pocket. And they are yours for just listening to this podcast. To claim them, go to Velociteach.com and select Manage This Podcast from the top of the page. Click the button that says Claim PDUs and just click through the steps. That's it for us here on Manage This. We hope you'll tune back in on September 19th for our next podcast. In the meantime, you can always visit us at velociteach.com slash manage this to subscribe to this podcast, to see a transcript of the show, or to contact us. And tweet us at manage underscore this if you have any questions about our podcasts or about project management certifications. We love to hear from you. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, keep calm and manage this.